Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Manyguns on this episode, which we have entitled Decolonizing Emergency Management. During this very important discussion, which took place as an IAEM Lunch and Learn for emergency managers in February of 2022, Dr. Manigan sheds some light on some critical but unrecorded elements of Canadian history and discusses what it means to decolonize your mindset and organizational practices. We'll also discuss what this means for emergency management and discover how closely related the goals of indigenization and disaster risk reduction truly are. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Hello and welcome everyone to this IAEM, International Association of Emergency Managers and Epic Podcast Virtual Learning Activity. Uh, My name is Grayson Cockett. I am a white settler and in the spirit of reconciliation, I'd like to recognize that I'm broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Sutina and Nakoda Nations, Métis Nation Region 3, and the Treaty 7 Region of Southern Alberta. I am joined today by Dr. Manny Guns to speak on the topic of decolonization in emergency management. Dr. Manny Guns is the Associate Vice President of Indigenization and Decolonization at Mount Royal University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, my pleasure. It's great to be able to get these messages out to as many people as possible so that we can collectively make change in Canadian society. I'm wondering if we could just start off giving a little bit of context to this discussion. You know, what is your background? What is your expertise? And what's your your areas of interest in this field? I was born on Sutina. Uh, my family name there is Many Wounds. My grandfather's name was Many Guns. And so I am, uh, those are my family lines. My Indigenous name is Natoyi Makshishkumaki. And women were named by the oldest uh, male person in our families. So I was named Holy Spring Woman. And that is a combination of names by my great grandfather, Tom and Mrs. Big Tobacco. And both of them had healing powers from the Banff Springs. And so up in Banff, uh, he gave me my name. And so I'm honored to have that Harriet. My background, you know, I I did a lot of, of work as a laborer. And when I did that, the unions usually pick kind of the cream of the crop and they send you to labor college. Well, I was a high school dropout. So I was petrified to go to this university. But when I was there, I discovered the archives in Ottawa and found my family in there. And these were uh, the annual reports that were being sent in by Indian agents. And they reported how many pounds of peas they got out of my relatives, my great grandfather and his wife. I mean, the detail was so frightening. And so I went to university with one question in mind, and that was to find out what happened to Aboriginal people. And so through all the courses and all the four degrees that I have, I always wrote papers on Aboriginal people and discovered and discovered and discovered parts and pieces of the story. And you go through quite a bit of trauma, actually, once you finally realize, you know, what your family has been through and what all the generations of Indigenous people, and you realize it's not just a one-off thing, that it's across all of Canada and in every Indigenous family. And so that brought me to university. I, I did, I have a BA 
in sociology. I have a master's in sociology from Carleton. I have a law degree from University of Ottawa, and I have a PhD from Trent University. And in all of those studies, I've grown into this individual now who cares very deeply about society and about making it a good place to live. And so decolonizing is all about that. Uh, one of the things that you learn is that the colonizer will write his own history and he writes out the parts he doesn't want people to know about. The fact of the matter is the, the curriculum that we all got taught, including the people on the reserves, was exempt of Aboriginal people. So we're currently at a point in time now where as a result of the bodies that were found in the summer and whatnot, Canada's been kind of traumatized and is kind of waking up. And they realize, holy smokes, maybe those Aboriginal people really are telling the truth. The issues of truth and reconciliation have come to the forefront very strongly, but they're also being pushed by a great, a, a huge part of Canadian society that wants the truth. And so that's my job. It's a wonderful place to be at here in Canada, where we really want to know the truth. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with us on this. I think this is incredibly important. And I can speak for myself when I say I don't know enough uh, about this topic. So maybe that's a good place to start. What is decolonization and indigenization? And, and why is it important as a way forward for, for Canada and emergency management? Okay, so it, there's, a, there's a huge uh, part of history that's not written in our textbooks. And that huge part of history, without it in there, tends to create animosity and uh, misunderstandings uh, about Aboriginal people. The truth of the matter is the Aboriginal people were the slave labor that actually picked the sugar beets that cleared all the, the, the farmland. We were, the, the children uh, were farmed out in all these residential schools that we all know about for free labor to surrounding areas. None of that is in the history books. We have worked very hard to create the Canada that you know today. We're all treaty people. We are all responsible for upholding treaties. These are living documents. They're not old documents that are, you know, were signed and they gave us a couple of plows and some twine and that's the end of it. These are living documents and they can be renegotiated and. And they are being re renegotiated and modern treaties are being drafted. In 1867, what happened was as the colonizer um, started to take control, the British North America Act was written in 1867. All of the Aboriginal people were removed from protection of Canadian law and they were put under the Indian Act. Every single profession was involved in the atrocities that were there. It wasn't just the Indian Act. It wasn't just the churches or residential school. So the death rates, not only of the children in residential school, but of the adults was just as bad. And to hide that, there's no graveyards anywhere. All of those bodies have just been buried somewhere or put somewhere so that the Canadian population wouldn't see any evidence of the atrocities. So 
putting the Aboriginal people off under the umbrella of the Indian Act. That was perpetuated by police officers, that was perpetuated by school teachers, nurses, doctors, every single profession has been intimately involved in the oppression of Aboriginal peoples ever since the beginning of the British North America Act. Canadians were actually prohibited from helping if you were a conscientious individual and saw those atrocities and wanted to act on them. They had legislation put in place where you could be fined if you dared oppose the government. The British government had actually put in concubinage laws against Aboriginal women ever being able to claim any kind of the, the benefits of living with a fur trader. So, I mean, we have been ostracized and separated from Canadian society. We never got to vote until 1963. So it's just been recent. And you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about Aboriginal people and you see all this chaos that kind of surrounds Aboriginal people and Aboriginal development. The chaos is a natural part of development because I wondered about that too. I thought, why are we so unorganized? Why are, you know? But once you realize in 1963 and in around that time, all across Canada, the government was pulling the Indian agents off and they just left behind everything. And people with no education, because they certainly never got educated in residential school, um, were left to try to pick up the pieces and figure out how to operate this. And so this chaos that you're seeing is actually a necessary stage that has to happen as Aboriginal people go through their development. The assimilation project failed. The project that the government put in place to totally absorb the Aboriginal people into the body politic has failed. Aboriginal people have continued to embrace their culture within an environment that was extremely oppressive, and yet they've been able to maintain it. We have stories on our reserve where they would go and take their grandkids out, out into the bush somewhere, and they would show them the ceremonies. And those ones there are the ones that are now helping us to revive our cultures. So decolonizing is actually understanding that there's a gigantic part of Canadian history that isn't included in our educational system. It means that, first of all, you have to understand that the notions that you have inside of your head have come not from education, but through the body politic. It's been propaganda that's been perpetuated by the government. Well, what's happening today is, as a result of the finding of the bodies in the summer, is Canadians are realizing that there's a horrible story behind that and in and around that whole, those incidences that now can't be denied. And so people want to have the history told, the true history. And that is what indigenization means. It means bringing forward and articulating the truth, not just of these atrocities, but also the good parts. Our people were actually very helpful to uh, European people when they arrived here. Cabot, when he sailed down the St. Lawrence, I mean, he arrived here and half his men were dying or dead. 
And he just asked for some help from some of the native women there. They mixed up a batch of, you know, they got some pines and they boiled it and they fixed it all up and they painted it on those guys' legs and they were healed in no time. They were able to analyze the sickness. They were able to know what kind of medication to give them and to be able to heal them. Well, those, uh, those gifts that the Aboriginal people have, all the spices, all the herbs, all the dyes, these dyes that we wear in our clothes, all come from Indigenous knowledge. None of that is written into the history books. That therefore leaves you with this impression that all we are is just foraging around for a few berries and, you know, with no uh, structures or societies. Our societies were very complex and they were balanced. I mean, there is a tremendous amount of the world today that's based on Indigenous knowledge. We need to rewrite history so that it's more respectful and actually traces all of that knowledge back to the original sources so that we can appreciate one another in a good way and we can see how we can grow together in order to make changes. We as Aboriginal people were very familiar with our environments. For instance, our name, our Blackfoot name, comes from the soles of our moccasins were black. Why? Because we used to do controlled burns. We did controlled burns over the entire prairie in order to ensure that when there was fires that it wouldn't destroy whole areas, that it would be stopped. You know, we had a, a very good life because we lived with nature. We learned how to, we knew all the elements, all the tragedies of, of, that can, can happen as a result of not respecting natural law. All of our world was based on natural law and natural law includes disasters and whatnot. So we have a tremendous amount that we can contribute to the world, whether it's disasters or whether it's productive changes. For instance, one of the reserves just north of Edmonton got some money from Trudeau, even though he gets lots of flack about uh, water treatment plants on reserves. And he sent some money to one of the reserves there. And when the elders got brought in and they looked at this plan for the water treatment plant, they thought, oh my goodness, look at all those chemicals that they're going to be using. They didn't like that. And so the elders, they called the land people. And what they did was they took the money for the water plant to build the facilities and, you know, the structure and stuff. They didn't use the chemicals. What they did was using all the natural plants and rocks from the environment, they created a filtration system that produced a better and, and purer water than the other system. That's what indigenization is about. Taking indigenous knowledge about the environment and learning to use that knowledge in today's world, because we're not frozen in time, in order to create a better way using natural laws in order to work with nature rather than ignore it. I'm here at the university and they watch decolonization and indigenization happening here. So what I did with uh, 
decolonization is I've created posters and they say things like, if you think Aboriginal people get everything for free, then you have a colonized mind. Begin your decolonizing journey. And it takes you to the website that I've got on the bottom of the posters. And we've got the very best information so that people can self-educate and start to learn and fill in these gaps. Did you know that Aboriginal people were mining 500 years before anybody discovered, discovered us? <laughs> Did you know that when Christopher Columbus arrived in you know, the Caribbean islands, that the reason he thought that he was in India was because the beautiful, fine woven materials that we had, he thought were silk. Cottons came from here. We are the ones that invented cotton. That needs to be in the history books. How come, you know, there's fabulous stories that, uh, that just bring to life the whole world uh, as a whole. Once we know the actual stories and we start to include these pieces that the colonizer deliberately left out for obvious reasons. Understanding that is what decolonizing is all about. If you can decolonize your own mind, then you're at the beginning part. You almost have to do that so that you have these questions. Well, then how did, you know, how did this happen? And how did that happen? And where did this come from? A tremendous amount of knowledge today actually is sourced from the Indigenous way of connecting with nature. And so it's about me and you learning to open up our minds in order to bring about this better understanding of how to connect with nature and live with nature. When I hear about these goals of indigenization, the utilizing traditional knowledge, correcting understanding of the past, and living in balance with nature and, and natural hazards, uh, these are the goals of emergency management as well, which is why I thought it was so important that um, uh, we, we have this discussion. Are there some examples of uh, either colonial practices in emergency management? I'm thinking about things like evacuation or uh, using traditional knowledge in, in risk assessments that you have seen be either harmful or helpful. Uh, and what other bits of understanding might be useful in some of these common activities in, in emergencies? Well, you know, as I said, um, we were very familiar with natural disasters. And so we were aware of where these may be occurring, just up the, the canyon, Crosness Pass. We knew that that mountain was unstable and we called it the talking mountain because you could hear it rumbling and, and just making noises and stuff like that. And that would eventually slide, slide, Frank slide is what it's called. And that was due to not listening to the land, not listening to even what the Aboriginal people were saying and ignoring it. There's uh, so many areas that uh, we could improve by embedding natural practices into our work in regards to hazards and whatnot. You know, those old people, those are the people that would be very important for your field to contact so that they can understand. And all those stories are contained within our stories about the land. For instance, 
the Delgamoot case, very important case. It was it had about 13 communities and they were doing a land claim. And basically uh, at that point in time in Canadian law, you had to establish that you were there since time immemorial, that you had control over that territory and you had to prove that before they could move on to even talking about the land claim. So the way that they proved it, the ox and the gox were brought into court, which are the songs and the stories. And those songs and stories told the time when a river changed its course. So then they got the archaeologists to go and dig around and find out the date when that river changed its course. And it established that they had been there thousands and thousands and thousands of years. The other thing I wanted to chat about was that really common uh, friction point in, in disaster of evacuation. What, what other considerations, what might be important mm. uh, to know about? Well, you hear often about Indigenous people saying that they, they have a responsibility to the land and to the animals. And those are very true statements. I'm a, a moto geek, but I'm also a beaver woman. And those are the bundles that exist just with the Blackfoot people. And they're huge bundles. They're big and round and they're long. And they're, you know, they have elk hide on the outside and special knots. And every single knot has a song. And we open those every spring. And then we open them again in the fall. And inside of them is every single animal that exists in our territory. And what we do is we made a deal with the longtime squirrel or the longtime crow or the longtime beaver thousands of years ago that we'll take care of them if they take care of us. And we renew that contract every spring and every fall. That's our responsibility. Okay, so I've mentioned the beaver bundle. I've mentioned the fact that we have these objects that are connected to our culture. And those are so important. A person would actually die with the bundle rather than leave it behind. And so if you're evacuating people that are connected, that are in an Indigenous community, you have to be aware of the importance of those items and that, that you bring those with, with them if they're requesting that, because it's it's like a psychological peace connection that people have. And it would be devastating, not just to the community, because those things, we're the human beings that are attached to them. We just do the work of opening and closing them. They belong to community. They've come through a song or through a story that was brought to the people thousands of years ago. So the importance of them is so profoundly deep that you should recognize if an elder is saying they have to go get this, you should help them try to get that. It's critical, actually. And it's different than just a canoe or just something that they're building or some, some activity that they might do for, for work or for selling or something like that. If it's an item that's connected to the culture, well, they're called our children, okay? There are children and we have to treat them like our children. You wouldn't leave your child to die. And so that importance is, is absolutely critical. 
in knowing about evacuations or, or anything, that those things have to come with the people. What other resources would you point us towards? What other areas could we go to, to learn more about this and advise our own practices? You know what's very interesting about this, and I, I was thinking about it last night, is that many, many of our young men are firefighters and travel all around the world doing that. And so I would say, you know, build on that as a a way to bring in that knowledge base. And in order to understand the land and the importance of the land as well, you know, every single area has is filled with the stories of the indigenous people. Like we've got Oak Tokes here. We've got Crow's Nest Pass. Crow's Nest Pass One of the most important stories that we have in the Blackfoot culture, the crow was the one that told Scarface how to find the lodge of the creator. Anyway, I won't go into the long, long story. He had the scar removed and he brought the uh, healing lodge to the people. I mean, these stories are embedded in the land and every single area that you're at, there might be sacred places that are there. You should try to respect them. Try to understand what those stories mean. Just to be aware of those things. You need to know the land. You need to know these places that you're going into so that the destruction stays natural and it isn't added to with human destruction because those are preventable. Dr. Manigans, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your understanding with us. I think there's a lot that we all need to do uh, to incorporate uh, traditional knowledge and recognize that the goals of indigenization are the goals of disastrous reduction and emergency management. Thank you so much for joining us. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Manigans for sharing her time and expertise with us on the topic of decolonization. Just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode was brought to you in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. This episode is also brought to you in part by the virtual open house for Edmonton Public Schools, who has prepared a short audio clip, which I will play for you now. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.